Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Whack, a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. There's more similarities between my living situation and the living situation in a prison institution. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. It was like a prison, and I know that sounds hyperbolic, but it was. Coming February 2022. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are joined by another member of the Harbinger Media Network family, Paris Marks, the host of Tech Won't Save Us, a weekly podcast that critiques the worldview of Silicon Valley. Paris has been published by NBC News, CBC News, Toronto Star, Jacobin, Tribune, One Zero, Canadian Dimension, and loads more. <laughs> You're everywhere. <laughs> All over the place. <laughs> Paris holds a master's degree in geography and will be talking to us today about Road to Nowhere, which you were so kind to share with us. And I read it and I I loved it. So I'm so excited to talk about this. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. <laughs> it's good to hear that people like the book. <laughs> it made me very angry, but in a good way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think that's like one of the goals, right? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Can you describe the book to listeners? Because it's it hasn't come out yet, so nobody has been able to read it yet. But I am really going to strongly urge people to pick up a copy. When is it out and, and what is it about? Yeah, July 5th, it comes out. You know, just uh, certain select people have been able to read it so far. <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone will be able to pick it up July 5th. Um, comes out from Verso Books, you know, you might know as a, as a big radical publisher. Um, but obviously, it's available from like chapters or Amazon, even uh, not loving them, but you know, anywhere, anywhere you want to get it, it it's, it's likely going to be there. Yeah, so the book is kind of, uh, it comes out of my master's research, actually. And so the goal was really to look at Silicon Valley's ideas for the future of transportation, you know, self-driving cars, ride-hailing services, all these things that they're after proposing, and to see, you know, what the promises that were made were, what the history of, of these ideas is, and if they were realized, or in the cases where they have been realized, what is the kind of real effect that they would actually have on our societies? Would they solve the problems that all of these tech billionaires and founders and whatnot claim that they would? And then in doing that analysis, I also kind of place those ideas within a broader history of automobility and of the tech industry. So we can see how those industries have also been shaped by capital 
you know, to serve particular interests and, and companies and whatnot um, over the course of many decades, a century or, or more. And then obviously I end the book, you know, it is a it is a radical book. It is a left wing book with a vision for a different kind of future of transportation that is more collective and and really oriented toward addressing the goals that many of these tech companies say they're going to address and then don't actually follow through on. <laughs> yeah, I was reading this book and uh, the whole time I was like, I love the shade cast on Elon Musk <laughs> and Uber in particular. You really uh, you really called them out in a big way, which that is deserved. Uh, Uber is a company that I always like was uncomfortable with. But you laid out the problems with Uber in such a great way that I was like I was shaking my head the whole time. And I was like highlighting stuff. I was like, fucking Uber. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but the whole time I was just waiting. I'm like, OK, yeah, but what does what does Paris want to see next? Because like this is so depressing. Like, how can we fix it? And then at the very end, it delivered. And I and I got to read that right before we came in on this recording. So I'm I can't, I'm on an up note now. <laughs> I feel like um, Lizzie O'Shea, uh, who wrote Future Histories, is is an Australian you know lawyer and and does a lot of work on technology and technology policy. She told me she was like, you know, each of your kind of chapters on the criticism of these. Um, ideas that that Silicon Valley has had for transportation, like, the, you know, a chapter on ride hailing, a chapter on self-driving cars should probably end with like a more positive spin, like how this could be used in a positive way. And yeah, that's not really what I did. I kind of waited <laughs> until the end of the book to to lay out like a broader, <laughs> more positive vision. So yeah, you get a lot of negative throughout the book itself, but then hopefully, yeah, you get something positive at the end. <laughs> Well, I also like the approach that like you, you really tied in history, uh, this idea that a lot of the stuff that's going on isn't actually, I mean, it's new to a certain degree, but we've had these fights before. <laughs> yeah. And like the way that you really approached the idea that like, sure, sometimes people are just anti-technology and it doesn't make sense and they want to keep things for the status quo because it status quo is benefiting them. But I like the way that you kind of turned that around and we're, we're saying basically like, you know, not all technology is good. And maybe we should push back a little bit more. Like we shouldn't have this inherent idea that technology is progress and it can't be stopped, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I think we generally have this idea that technology is like inherently a good thing and that when technology moves forward, that is equivalent to social progress and society moving forward. And, you know, part of the book is picking up on these ideas that uh, that try to challenge that and that say, like, actually, when we do develop these technologies, we should make sure that those technologies are actually in service of the public and, you know, delivering the things that we actually want to see instead of just trusting that simply because a technology exists or a technology is implemented um, in, in a new kind of way, that that is naturally a good thing. Because I think that our experience with Silicon Valley, particularly in the past decade or so, has been seeing that we kind of let the kind of ball of critical thought like drop when it comes to technology. And then like particularly, you know, we kind of had this moment around 2015, 16, where I think there was a bit of a wake up call, like, wow, instead of just like kind of boosting this industry and thinking like everything with Silicon Valley and tech is positive, we have kind of ignored all of the negative things that have come of that and that we just kind of let exist because we wanted to believe in the positive vision and now we are having to try to reckon with that still to this to this moment right yeah i think for me the starkest example of that in your book was uh 
the story about Elon Musk's loop idea. <laughs> Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. <laughs> I hadn't even heard of that before. And I was like, of course, Elon Musk would want, like, I knew he wanted to build tunnels, but like the actual story of like, what a colossal failure they are and would be if realized, I thought you did a really good job of, of illustrating. <laughs> but like, of course, Elon Musk wants a tunnel that only he could use to get through like yeah. traffic. <laughs> Yeah, like it, it's it's such a wild like idea too, and and one of the things that's in the book and that a lot of people don't realize who even like know about the tunnel idea is that before Elon Musk came up with tunnels to solve traffic, his solution was to just add a second layer to highways, um, and that that would be our solution, like double decker highways, right? And that was obviously not going anywhere, um, and so then he came up with this this idea that there would be all these tunnels underneath the city and we would use those instead of the roads and then that would solve traffic. And, and it's so funny then to see how the idea has developed from uh, initially his proposal was to have like 100 levels of tunnels underneath Los Angeles for cars. Um, <laughs> and now like it's literally like an amusement ride in Los at the Las Vegas Convention Center um, where you can like have a Tesla test drive and like have these little flashing colors like it, it's literally like disney like a little disneyland ride for like elon musk enthusiasts right um <laughs> and like it, it has not delivered on like anything that he promised it would and so it's just like another example of these these ideas that just people like elon musk you know make all these grand claims about like it's going to solve traffic and and blah 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 and then in the end it it ends up being this like complete joke but even if it had achieved, you know, what Elon Musk wanted it to be, even if he was able to build these tunnels in Las Vegas, or sorry, in Los Angeles, as he initially proposed, like, there would not be the room for everyone to like stick their cars in them and for it to solve traffic, it would naturally be something that would serve rich people like Elon Musk, instead of like the general public. And it's like, this is just the way these things work out so many times. <laughs> Yeah. And what I what I really liked about reading your book in particular is that I find a lot of socialist solutions to problems are often very like anti-tech in a way that doesn't understand tech and the potential for tech to improve people's lives. Like there's a reason that people love the idea of technology leading the way into a better future, because like technology has improved our lives in a lot of ways. And I think that like you as somebody who is in like this space a lot recognize like this is why people like the idea of techno solutions. This is why the techno solutions that we've been offered by rich men in Silicon Valley aren't what we should be dealing with. And your solutions at the end of the book don't necessarily push away the idea of tech entirely. Like I find so often that people um, in the socialist space that don't understand tech want us to just go back to being like, you know, like fur traders. And I'm like, well, there's problems then too, right? <laughs> Yeah, I I definitely don't want to like regress in in that kind of way. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I I think it is really interesting because like once again, you know, we can see that technology has had material benefits and certainly like for me, the kind of way that I come to criticism of technology like, you know, in the book but also more broadly with the podcast and the other writing that I do is like, you know, I'm someone who was really enthused by technology at a young age, like really into these kind of things. You know, I, I'm not a coder myself or anything like that. But like, you know, these ideas are things that I was into. And I think even if we think like more 
broadly about the culture, like, you know, we've been promised these future visions and these future visions that would be realized by technological advances for a long time, like, you know, in, in different forms for centuries, I'm, I'm sure, right? Or, or at least well over a century. And, you know, even when we think today, like so many of the billionaires in Silicon Valley who are proposing these kind of futuristic visions are often couching them in the language of science fiction and like science fiction stories that they read as kids um, and that like a lot of people would be familiar with. And so there's this natural desire to want these things and then to just kind of extend that desire to believing that simply because, you know, again, there's a new technology that is going to mean social progress and we shouldn't question that. But really the key is not inherently to like hate technology and think that technology is the problem, but to recognize that technology under a capitalist system is serving capitalist aims, right? And so if you do want to develop technology that is in service of the public good, then you need to like explicitly deal with the politics of that technology as well, instead of just assuming that, you know, technology is there, it's just a tool, it, it'll inherently do positive things, right? And so, you know, we need to kind of complicate that motion and reckon with the politics of technology, just as we reckon with the politics of so many other things that we deal with in everyday life. And one thing that um, maybe would be interesting for listeners is, um, you know, in the book, you you really tie a lot of the problems that we're having now to sort of like this original problem with a car. Um, so can you sort of describe what what that issue is? Why is why is the car problematic? <laughs> yeah, for many reasons, right? Um, <laughs> and and I, I think the key here, right, is in in doing that in the book. I think having that historical piece was important because especially like in the moment where we are today. Yes, there's some more questioning of the car and the role of the car, especially at a moment when gas prices are through the roof. But the car is largely normalized in, especially in like Canadian and North American society, right? Like it's a key piece of the idea of Canada that we've been sold. You know, most Canadians live in suburbs. Um, so this is, you know, very much what people are used to. And the idea for a lot of people that you tell them that like, they should get rid of their car or that they should use transit instead of a car. Like it's kind of unimaginable because those alternatives or even the experience with something like that really isn't there for a lot of people, right? And so I think then unpacking the history is important to realize like where these problems actually come from, why traffic is like in inherently linked to the fact that we all have to drive these cars. And so, you know, automobility and, and, you know, our use of cars really comes out of the late um, 19th century, early, early 20th century. That's when these really start to be used and introduced on American and Canadian roads. And at the time, the way that we get around is very different, right? The, the way that our communities are constructed is very different because people are either living in really rural areas or they're in these cities that are much more closely packed together. So, you know, you'd walk, you'd take a bike, um, you'd take the electric streetcar if you're in a bigger city. You know, you might take a horse-drawn carriage depending on, you know, what class you are or where you live or, or what have you, or, you know, in rural areas certainly um, as well. And so the car enters the picture and is very different from what exists at the time, in particular because it goes faster than things that already exist, especially as it develops quite rapidly, right? And so that kind of breaks this 
norm that existed to that point and is really an intruder for a lot of people because that is not how people got around at that time. And so as we see the car begin to proliferate and, and more and more of them come onto the street, there isn't really the room for them because the street isn't set up according to those norms. But also people are used to seeing the street as like a public space, right? Even though there are these different um, forms of mobility that are happening on the street, it's also a place where people can freely walk. The side streets are where children would usually play, especially like in an urban place. Um, and so then the car enters and all of a sudden the car is a threat to those people because it starts to kill more and more of them. You see the first death by a car in 1899 in New York City, and that's like considered a big deal, right? The, the people that that affects most of all, those deaths, are children and young women. And naturally, those are people and, and groups that are considered more innocent. And so there is a big backlash to the role that the car plays and the position that the car holds in the city. Uh, because, you know, again, the infrastructure and the roads are not made for cars already. They are, they are entering into roads that are made for a different kind of mobility, a different kind of community. And so there is a lot of backlash. There is a lot of people campaigning to restrict cars, to ensure that they don't have the kind of ability to just go everywhere, to, to enter onto the roads in that way, to ensure that they're not killing people really at the, at the core, right? Well, we solved that problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, like even to be having the discussion at this moment, like in Canada, I don't actually know um, how the stats have been have been developing. I believe it was like seventeen or eighteen hundred people died in two thousand nineteen um, on the roads in Canada, something like that. But in the United States, there's actually like a significant increase in the number of people dying on the roads in recent years. It was just out the other day, last year, um, almost forty three thousand people were killed on American roads. That's up ten percent from last year, and last year was already a record. That was up like a significant amount from the year before. So like, it's actually wild, like what is happening right now, particularly in the United States, when we think of like road deaths and things like that. Um, but, but essentially, you know, to, to kind of tie up the story and not to go on too long about it, there was this um, opposition to the car by a lot of groups who were seeing its impacts on the streets, particularly in cities. But then obviously there were a lot of interests that were tied to the car automakers, you know, rubber people for, for tires, um, oil companies, um, especially as they grew, you know, real estate interests and all these sorts of people who saw a really material gain from the car taking hold because of then how you change the infrastructure, you change the way that communities are designed, you start to build suburbs over time. And so those groups really form, end up forming a powerful interest that is able to push forward the remaking of streets for cars, the building of highways, the expansion of suburbs, the mortgage insurance that makes it much easier for people to be able to buy their own homes. So that really remakes, you know, the the shape of North American communities and North American transportation systems. And of course, it happens in Europe and other parts of the world as well to be oriented around the car to serve those profit interests, right? I, I think one thing that we kind of forget when we think about the car today. It's like, you know, we own the car, we drive everywhere. But you also, we also tend to forget, I think, when we think about the cost of the car and the ownership of the car is how many, like, you know, it needs to go for maintenance, it needs to get oil, like you're relying on so many of these other kind of companies and producers that that benefit that take a cut from everyone owning a car. Um, and so there's still a lot of, 
even even as we recognize its contribution to like climate change and environmental issues, there's still um, a lot of people who support the the continuance of our reliance on it because it makes you know profit for a lot of different uh, interests and sectors. Yeah, one of the things that I found really interesting about reading your book is is just thinking about how normal it is to assume that the car is the way everybody gets around. When really, if you like take 10 seconds to think about it, it's a super inefficient way to organize transporting people. Yeah. <laughs> I had never thought about the class dimensions of that either, that it was sort of, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. You know, when, when the car emerges, obviously the people who are, who are owning them, most of all, are what well, tend to be upper class people, right? Um, and it is seen as something that is you know, it, cars are seen as like touring, like, you know, you you can go drive around in the countryside, things like that, right? Especially in the in the early days, um, before it becomes more of this mass mobility sort of object and, and product. But, you know, for automakers and for interests that are associated with it, just having this kind of niche product isn't as isn't as profitable for them. And so there is a natural desire to increase the number of people who own a car. Um, and it, it, it's interesting because I actually read some work by um, a scholar named, uh, what's his name? David Gartman, I believe. And he kind of suggested that one of the things about the car and by expanding car ownership is that you then have people who like have this kind of piece of property, this kind of stake in the system that they own, right? And so as you expand it, more and more like middle class and working class people start to own cars. They have that kind of connection to the system. They're they're paying for it over a number of years. It's a similar thing with a mortgage, right? The idea that you buy this home and then there there are surveys that show that homeowners tend to be more conservative than renters because you have to pay this thing over a long period of time, you need or you hope to have this like stability in your employment and what's going to happen. So you don't want change that is going to really upend things, right? Because because you have these um, responsibilities, right, that you have to keep up. And so when we think about mobility today, for a lot of, you know, upper class people, ownership of a car would not be an issue. I think we see even more and more people who are in the middle class, you know, once again, we underestimate, I think, the cost of car ownership. The um, CAA in Canada estimates it's somewhere between eight and $13,000 a year that it actually costs to own a car. Um, when you consider gas, maintenance, insurance, like all these sorts of things, the, the total cost of, of actual ownership. And so that's like really significant. That's a huge cost, right? That people um, don't consider that people downplay. And so you know, that is increasingly a stretch on middle class people as wages have, you know, stagnated over a number of years as we're seeing higher costs with inflation and, and rising gas prices. But for people who are on the lower income side of things, that is a huge cost. And a lot of lower income people wouldn't have a car altogether. And then they're left relying on our public transit systems that are underfunded, that don't properly serve our communities. And often the, uh, like, unfortunately, the parts of the city that are best served by transit can also be places, especially as we've seen these really huge increases in the cost of housing, um, you know, would be increasingly unaffordable to the very people who need access to it most. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that made me angriest about the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as someone who lives in Vancouver, I chose to live here because it's like the most walkable city in Canada and it's still very car dependent. 
uh, in a way that when I was doing tours back before the pandemic, I would tell this story whenever we were crossing the, um, the Lionsgate Bridge about how nobody wanted this bridge when it was built, right? Like the Guinness family built it and they, they, were, they wanted to be able to have easier access to their property on the other side, like on the northern shore of Vancouver. And, and the city was like, basically like, no, you cannot build a road through Stanley Park. This is a beautiful park that people love. You can build this bridge over our dead bodies. And then the Great Depression came and suddenly they needed to make jobs for people and the bridge would have been a big job. But it originally they called it a bridge to nowhere, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, like originally they they built it with the idea that there would be three lanes, one for one direction of traffic, one for the other direction of traffic and one for stopping to take photographs because the only people taking the bridge would be people who we're on a joy ride basically and it's just <laughs> that's so wild <laughs> yeah and now it's like the one of the busiest bridges probably in all of canada and like if you stop to take a <laughs> photograph in your car you would die like <laughs> that's really fascinating though because it, it does make me think like you know the the book that deals a lot with the united states right you know the united states is you know really where car ownership and car dominance is most prominent but also where the tech industry is most prominent and so you know it's also a, a bigger market than canada for book sales <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> but um but it, it's interesting because down there as well like in the pre great depression like there are these proposals for road systems and for like urban highway systems that are more multimodal, you know, that are not just for cars, but that are for buses and streetcars and things as well for trucks, and that are arranged in a way that are more suited toward like urban priorities. Um, but then what happens is that, you know, once again, the Great Depression happens, the cities don't have the money to build them anymore. And so then the the planning and thinking about highways gets like reoriented towards state and federal goals. And so then it's like, we're not really concerned about, um, you know, the the health of the city and, and what is necessary for the city. It's rather connecting the cities and what's good for like ur uh, rural areas and expanding um, economic opportunities and, and access and things like that. And so like it completely offends the ideas of like how a highway should be constructed to like the ideas that we have now. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting how these kind of, you know, just happenstance things, like just things that happen that you don't expect to happen um, can then completely alter like priorities that governments have, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting because it's not part of what you think about when you hear like the story of the great depression, right? Um, you hardly ever hear that it's sort of like this inflection point for transportation. Um, and your book not only talks about that in terms of roads, but also in terms of like the taxi medallion system, um, yeah. <laughs> which I, I had always wondered what the history of that was, um, especially since, you know, Uber came in, um, you know, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of taxis that might be interesting for people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's probably a little bit different for Canada, once again, like how things actually played out. But, you know, in in the United States, taxis weren't necessarily things until they became regulated later. And what happens in the Great Depression and, and in these economic downturns more generally, is that one of the ways people who are out of work, try to then make money is by providing rides to people you know, who will pay for them. Um, you know, the Jitneys is one example of this. And it's an example that 
Uber CEO Travis Kalanick used at one point to create a historical analogy for what he was trying to do. And obviously, he framed it in a very particular way as like, these are, you know, entrepreneurs who are, you know, going out and providing this service. And it's a shared service instead of like the the personal ownership of the of the automobile. And, and the interesting thing, of course, is at the time the Jitneys emerge, the main way that people would be getting around would be like, you know, in the electric streetcar, right? Not <laughs> through the personal ownership of an automobile. Uh, and so it's kind of disrupting that. And, and one of the interesting things is that the electric streetcars at the time are like highly regulated and they have to pay certain taxes to the city to ensure in some cases, they also have to ensure that the road is like properly paved, like that's their responsibility, not the responsibility of the city. And so when the Jitney comes along, it starts taking away with the Jitney is basically like a, a kind of proto taxi service that kind of runs like on a regular route, sort of like we would expect from a bus um, that has a regular fare, but will also go off of that route to deliver you somewhere specific if you pay a little bit more just to give people an idea. And they were usually run with um, the the original kind of Ford vehicles that were that were around at the time, you know, that that wouldn't be too old at the time. Um, and so basically, it, it disrupts the electric streetcars kind of dominance over transportation, um, and also makes it more difficult for them to deliver those benefits to the city that residents are expecting, because it it it's more difficult than to deliver the tax revenue that provides that. And so the Jitneys are kind of disorganized, right? The people who provide them don't have like a collective organization. It's just people who happen to be out of work and who then started to provide this service to people, this taxi-like service. And so it's very easy then for the electric streetcar companies who you know are powerful players in these cities to come together, to work together, to ensure that the Jitneys get regulated quickly. And that kind of kills the economic model of the Jitney because they're already kind of just operating on the line. They're not making very much profit. And so to have to pay some kind of tax just makes them completely uneconomical, right? And within a few years, they're basically wiped out. And so, you know, the electric streetcar is is in charge again. But what we see, and and this kind of goes against the, the tale that Travis Kalanick, the Uber CEO, tries to weave, is that still we have the personal automobile then overtake it. Like, you know, if the Jitney's defeated, you'd expect, you know, we'd just still be taking the streetcar right now. But that's not what we do, because there were other interests at play that ensured the car came to dominate, right? And so, you know, at, at a certain period, the cities start to regulate taxi services because it's clear that, you know, this is something that uh, is going to exist within the city and it needs to provide a certain degree of benefit. And, you know, the downsides of it need to be regulated so it can operate within the context of the city. And so then a lot of the taxi regulations recognize that there needs to be a particular fare for the taxi to you know, be able to provide a good living for the driver to be able to provide a decent revenue stream. But, you know, the number of taxis also needs to be regulated so that you don't just have like as many people as who want to become a taxi driver enter the street and create a ton of traffic, right? And so you need to kind of balance all of these different goals providing a good living for the taxi driver, ensuring there's not enough traffic, still ensuring that people can get a taxi when they need one. And then Uber kind of, in, in entering and in saying that it's not a taxi company and taxi rules don't apply and having 
enough clout because it is this kind of centralized, monopolized tech company to ensure that it's not properly regulated. So it kind of explodes those taxi regulations that have already been chipped away at over the course of a number of decades so that anyone can enter and become a taxi driver. And then we see the increase in traffic and the 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 fares are determined by the company. And so then the taxi or the Uber drivers start making a lot less money because, you know, you don't have then the protections of the regulation. So, you know, it, it blows up this kind of system that worked somewhat well, um, that that provided a decent standard of living for taxi drivers and, you know, a decent service and, and what have you to this kind of unregulated service where Uber is really making the decisions about what a taxi looks like. And I, I think a really interesting development, I'll, I'll stop talking in a second, is that Uber just recently announced an agreement with the taxi companies in New York City to offer like actual yellow cabs on its app. But, you know, at that point, Uber is in control of a lot of the aspects of how that works, right? Um, and so I think that kind of creates a lot of questions then. If Uber is in charge of the traditional taxi service now too, is it making the rules? And at what point or does the city ever step back in to really enforce some degree of regulation over things, right? Because part of the reason is that Uber has been having trouble getting enough drivers. Uber still hasn't really become a profitable company despite operating for more than a decade, losing billions of dollars. And so they need their their investors are now demanding that they turn a profit or that they show some degree of like positive revenue. And so they have had to cut back the incentives that made their rides cheaper than a taxi service for so long. And so, you know, it's just all these dynamics are changing. And so, you know, how does that how does that reorient the picture? How does that change things? I think that's a question that will that's kind of still up in the air. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love the history that you brought to your book um, in just shaping the world that we're in now and just explaining how we got here. And I was just wondering, you did a really good job in your book of taking the, the like steam out of the electric car. And I would just say like, I, I want to know, I want to know what you would say to an Elon Musk apologist who, uh, one, oh, so I, I should preface this. One of my favorite podcasts, <laughs> the host is a billionaire apologist, and uh oh, <laughs> and and I and I love the host. I love him so much, and so like I'm not going to call him out because I'm probably just going to send him an email separately at one point. But like, <laughs> this is where we find out that Kyla listens to like Jordan Peterson or something. <laughs> I didn't realize what kind of podcast I was coming on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Surprise. <laughs> Um, no, but uh, a point that that this podcast likes to make is that Elon Musk has come in and completely reshaped the idea of the car and what should be expected of the car. And and uh, they're basically saying, like, thanks to Elon Musk, uh, we're now envisioning a future that might be like carbon neutral or he was the only person to come in and and really like take a take a chance on the electric car and now there's electric cars everywhere thanks to him and i'm just wondering like what would you say to my friend on that podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's um it, it's interesting right because that is the way that things definitely get framed around the electric car like you know say what you will about elon musk at least he has made people more interested in electric cars right maybe to a certain degree i actually <laughs> 
you know, Tesla is a company that was founded before Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk came in later as the money man and then took over the company, kicked out its founders, started saying that he was the founder of the company, even though he wasn't. And then a later settlement with one of those founders made it so it was okay for him to call himself a co-founder, even though he was not. Interesting story there. I tend to believe personally, and certainly people can disagree with me, that I think Elon Musk just came along at the right time. I think electric cars were already kind of going to happen. What we saw in the, it was around the, you know, the turn of the millennium, late 1990s, early 2000s, we were already seeing the increase in interest in electric mobility as there was both the recognition that climate change was becoming a big problem. Um, and also, you know, around that moment with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, there was also the kind of recognition of what oil reliance in the United States was, you know, kind of forcing America to keep going on these these wars to secure its oil supplies and things like that, right? The Iraq war um, is is really the one there. And so I think there was already a growing interest in electric mobility. California had a particular law that was in place that was going to force automakers to start supplying electric vehicles. And then that was changed because of some oil or sorry, automotive industry lobbying and things like that. But but this was already kind of taking off. This was already happening. This was already developing. And so I think that for me, Elon Musk is a guy who comes along at the right time, who has the tech image that the media that the public is really looking for at the time and is able to really capitalize on that because right around 2008, 2009, when there's the introduction of the roadster, you know, we have the recession, we're coming out of it. What is going to be the solution to our economic troubles? Elon Musk and the tech industry more broadly are perfectly placed to receive that attention and to say, look, we are going to save the American economy. We are going to solve climate change. We are going to do all these amazing things, right? And so then I would actually say when we look at Tesla in particular, you know, a company that was saved by the US government, um, by, by Obama and the the bailout that he was able to give the company so it could keep operating. There's a ton of like moments like that in Tesla's history and certainly Elon Musk more broadly, he's very reliant on public subsidies that many people don't realize. So I guess I would say Tesla is important, no, no doubt. Um, and it, it has made people interested in electric vehicles. And I think there are two sides to that. I think electric vehicles are certainly important. I think electric mobility more broadly is important because it does reduce the emissions of the vehicle by taking away the oil and the diesel that fuels the vehicles, right? But then I think one of the ways that Elon Musk in particular, especially at this moment, is really hurting us is that right now in this moment, you know, as he's going through this kind of, I don't even know what you'd want to call it. Um, explosion like <laughs> I, I don't I don't know I don't know how to describe his currently his current like public persona and what he's doing but, there's a lot going on with Elon right now <laughs> yeah there's a lot yeah but one of one of the things he says and you know we saw this recently in a in a text exchange that he released with Bill Gates and he said it the other day when um Elon Musk was kicked kicked out of the S&P 500s, um, you know, group of uh, ESG companies or or whatever that is, uh, you know, about environmental and companies that that you know care about environmental goals and and social goals and human rights and things like that. 
um, was that he says that Tesla is the company that has done the most in the world to like solve climate change or save the environment or whatever. And, and that is based on the belief that electric vehicles are this like huge change from the kind of transportation system that we've known and, and really going to solve this problem of climate change, right? And when we look at Tesla, what do we see in that electric car company? It is a luxury vehicle company that, and, and these vehicles are primarily owned by higher net worth individuals who would have multiple vehicles that they would be driving. And so, you know, the actual emissions impact of a Tesla vehicle would be comparatively lower because of that, because it wouldn't be replacing all of the kilometers or miles driven of a fossil fuel vehicle because you know someone is using multiple different vehicles and the initial emissions the production emissions of an electric car are much higher than a fossil fuel vehicle because the battery has a really high emissions footprint right and you bring that down by using it for a longer period of time because the actual energy that you use the power of the car is lower right but the issue there is that electric vehicles are not like the silver bullet solution that someone like Elon Musk or a lot of Elon Musk supporters present. And that's not to say I hate electric vehicles. That's not to say I think we should all keep relying on fossil fuel vehicles. It's to say that the real sustainable mobility switch is not to replace every fossil fuel car on the road with an electric vehicle, but to start getting more people to take public transit in a really significant way. And that is something that Elon Musk has not only opposed. He said that public transit is somewhere where you'll run into serial killers and where you'll be unsafe. It's not something that is convenient or reliable. And he's even uh, tried to have transit developments or trains um, defeated and, and not built because, again, he wants us to keep, keep being reliant on a car. And so I, I think that even if early on he had this positive impact by making people interested in electric cars, I think that has turned negative by continuing to make us believe that electric cars and luxury electric cars in particular are like the solution to our climate problem um, and that public transit sucks and we shouldn't want to take it and we should be driving Teslas. I think that's a really serious problem. Yeah, like just because uh, Elon Musk would probably get stabbed if he was on a bus doesn't mean the rest of yeah. us would. <laughs> You can understand why Elon Musk doesn't want to take transit, yeah, but uh, it's not really healthy for our society. There's this quote that goes around sometimes, I believe it's by like uh, a mayor in Colombia or something like that, and he says like a healthy, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but it's something like a healthy society is not where like everyone has a car, but where like rich people take public transit, like, you know, as well as the poor people, right? And, you know, that's just not a something that Elon Musk would ever support or want us to realize, you know. <laughs> yeah, because he wants to escape to his moon colony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I liked the, uh, I liked how you, you drew on um, Elysium, that movie yeah. about a few years ago as an example of like what, what the techno elite would love to see. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and the thing is like, will we ever get the space colony? I don't know, but they would certainly love to build like, you know, a, a rich society that is like carved out from the rest of society. And I would argue that we already sort of see that taking place to a certain degree. Like, yes, they still get stuck in traffic like everyone else, unless they're taking like a helicopter to where they're going. Or like the other day, we saw Elon Musk private jet fly from San Jose airport to San Francisco airport, a nine minute flight. 
I guess, so he could skip traffic or something. But, you know, these rich people already have their gated communities where they're separated from everyone else. They already have their own private air terminals where they don't need to talk, you know, be in the airport with everyone else or wait to board or anything. You know, there there is already kind of a, a private infrastructure for rich people that has been built up in a way that a lot of people wouldn't even realize. And I think you can see like a lot of their ideas for the future as just kind of, even though they presented it as something that serves all of us, it's really about kind of further entrenching this, this separation of them from us um, and allowing them to live in a way that like most people in the world would never be able to imagine as the rest of us have to deal with the consequences of that very world that they're creating. Yeah. And I mean, one of the ideas from the book that I found really interesting was this idea of the like shut-in economy. Uh, <laughs> so like the extension of that model to like a slightly wider swath of society. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So the shut-in economy is something that Lauren Smiley, who now writes for Wired, I believe, at the time she wrote for Matter, you know, wrote about in 2015, she she came up with the idea. And and essentially, it's like, I, I think it's something that people would be much more familiar with now. But like, at the time in 2015, this was something that was really novel as like these gig economy and delivery services were really beginning to take hold as people were beginning to use Amazon a bit more often. And so she was in Silicon Valley. You know, all of these things were adopted first by Silicon Valley tech workers because really it was designed for and by Silicon Valley tech workers and then kind of sold to the rest of us. And so she was kind of writing about how in Silicon Valley, there were all of these tech workers that were making like, you know, quite good salaries who were in these like nice houses and like really fancy apartment buildings but we're not going out and doing their own shopping. We're not doing their own cooking. We're just getting everything delivered to them through Amazon and through these gig economy services. And they were even kind of able to separate themselves from the people who were doing those deliveries. So you had this further divide between the, the people who were being served, these you know tech workers who were on good salaries, who were kind of farming out their chores to these gig economy workers, and then those workers themselves, many of whom, let's remember, were people who lost jobs in the recession of 2008, 2009, um, then were unable to find, you know, a new job as, as things came back, and found themselves stuck in, in this, this kind of precarious labor market and turned to gig economy services. And so, there was this greater divide between the people who could access these services, who could use these services, and then the growing pool of people who were delivering these services to that very pool of people. And so, you know, I, I was actually talking to her a few weeks ago, and we could, we could, I think, really see this more in the pandemic when, you know, especially early on in the pandemic, we had the lockdown, everyone was supposed to stay at home, but some of us were staying at home. And then other people were out picking up food, picking up groceries and delivering it to the other people. And so I think that you can really see this, this divide. And, you know, I, I, I do worry about the kind of society that creates, right? Like where you have these people who are on stable jobs, who now can work from home if they want much more easily, who, you know, are earning good salaries, who have that stability. And then other people who 
are kind of dealing with constant precarity, whether it's the people working for the gig economy services or the people who, you know, are making the food at the restaurants, the fast food places, whatnot, who are also quite precariously employed usually or on low pay and and the kind of lives that they have to deal with and how we increasingly have this more and more unequal society where we are kind of divided between those two groups. And there doesn't seem to be so much of like a recognition or like a desire to actually address those things by people in power. Like, you know, we saw in Ontario recently, there was the discussion about how to regulate gig work and they wouldn't even go so far as to make them like employees with like minimum standards, right? Even though gig work really is kind of the return to piecework that, you know, was supposed to be kind of unimaginable in the global north. Um, but, you know, now technology is allowing us to bring it back. So, yeah, it's it's a, not a great trend. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's not awesome. Yeah. And that, that shut in economy, I think, is like a big prop part of why we're seeing so much like division politically, like because nobody nobody's interacting with each other anymore. If you don't have to interact with someone outside of your own circle, then you don't. And that's especially a problem. And I thought you'd illustrated this really well in the book. This is especially a problem for those in Silicon Valley um, and the tech bros who are designing a world based on their own experiences. And they've never spoken to somebody who might be in a wheelchair using a sidewalk and gets blocked in the street by a delivery robot, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, and like, you know, I think you can see that in so many of their like ideas and their like technological solutions. It's very much like, this is a problem that I ran into personally in my life as a usually white guy of like a privileged background who probably has quite a bit of money, you know, Elon Musk runs into traffic and then he tweets out from his phone that he's going to make tunnels to solve traffic. <laughs> and then this actually becomes like a business plan, right? That doesn't make any real sense, but that he pursues and that people believe in or Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, who says that, you know, they were having trouble finding a, a black car or people were having trouble finding taxis in San Francisco. And so they made this app to just completely destroy the taxi industry. That's not how he would describe it. That's how I would describe <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, and, and kind of blow up the transportation system because he personally had trouble finding a taxi, right? And so there's so many examples of this in Silicon Valley in particular, where so many of these solutions are things that, you know, people in the tech industry who are a particular kind of person generally um, have had trouble with, and then they create that as a service. They sell it as the future, as solving these like much bigger problems than they actually ever set out to solve. And then, you know, pushing that on the rest of us and telling us that this is like a global solution that we all need to embrace without actually considering the consequences. And then like a decade later, wondering how they've lost $30 billion and never turned a profit yeah. because like nobody actually wants this stuff. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The people that like got in and invested have made their money. It's like the mooks that came in later that are screwed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like even though even though Uber's share price has tanked since it went public, the people who bought in really early, who were the early investors, they got out right when you know the ipo happened so they made a ton of money right and so it doesn't really matter to them if the company was unprofitable for all this time because because of the mechanisms of the stock market and how all this stuff works you know they they made their money <laughs> yeah and i mean like 
we could talk about how Uber has never really made a profit. We could talk about like Loop and how ridiculous the idea was, or even <laughs> just like the the bird scooters that are sort of parked everywhere. But why is it the case that we get so like ensorcelled by these tech companies when a lot of times if you like spend a little bit of time picking it apart, like it's pretty obvious that the solutions were never really going to work, at least for most people. Totally. You know, it's it's so interesting and it, like it's kind of perplexing in a way, right? It, in the sense that like it really was obvious if you really dug into it and if you, you know, people who had knowledge of like, the transportation industry and how transportation works a lot of them when they looked at these proposals could very clearly see the holes in them like very early on right and it's a lot of people in the tech industry who have no prior experience in transportation or in so many of these industries that they um quote unquote disrupt who just imagine that things work in like a much more simplistic way than they actually do or you know not to, like that I hate journalists or anything, but like, you know, especially early on as a lot of these ideas were being proposed, as these companies were being founded, there were people who reported on them who were tech journalists who didn't, who also didn't have that kind of knowledge of the sectors that they were entering into. And also a lot of them who didn't really have the curiosity or you know, let's let's understand how the economics of journalism works right now. They weren't given the time and the space to learn that because they needed to churn out stories and whatnot. And so there was, as we talked about earlier, you know, in the in the conversation, there was just this desire to believe that technology would bring us this progress, right? Especially with these with these companies that emerged post two thousand eight, because you know the economy was in the tank. We needed jobs. We needed economic growth. What was going to bring that? Technology. Technology companies, the Silicon Valley. And so we needed to trust them, to believe in them. We couldn't question them because, you know, that was going against our own interests, the jobs, the economy, blah, blah, blah. And so we needed to believe in them. We needed to believe that technology could deliver these things, you know, and then the consequences and the realization came later. And I think it's really interesting because in this moment, as we talk, we're seeing the tech industry and, and the bubble kind of deflate. I'm, I'm not sure we've seen it really crash yet in some companies. Like, you know, we saw a big drop in Facebook a number of months ago. Netflix notably has crashed recently. Uber's share price is way down. A lot of companies like eBay and Shopify have seen big declines recently. <laughs> not the Canadian darling Shopify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I, I think there's this question of like, you know, these companies have been able to lose a lot of money for a long time because interest rates were low and because money was easy to access. And now we're entering this period where interest rates are rising and and money is is not as easy, right? You know, there was a particular environment that allowed these companies to thrive, even though they weren't making money. And as we enter into this new period, that isn't defined by those same economic and monetary realities, could a company like this still make it? Would they have to act in a different way? And what that what is that actually going to mean for the companies that have been able to go on this long, like an Uber, and how are they going to have to change? And as I said, like we're already seeing Uber having to say it's 
you know, cutting back, it's going to show a profit, it's cutting its incentives. So there's already this shift kind of happening. But, you know, will they survive? What will they look like in a, in a time when they actually need to prove they can make money? You know, I think it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And I mean, I guess maybe it's a little bit trickier with Uber because in most places, taxis do still exist. So they have a competitor. But this sort of switch was making me think a little bit about what Google um, started to have to do during the financial crisis, you know, when they were sort of pushed by their investors, you need to make a profit. And it really led to a predatory business model. So do you think that's what's going to happen for consumers? And, and if so, like, how do we fight back? Yeah, like, it's hard to say for sure. But absolutely, like, you know, Google said it was not going to be evil, then it embraced <laughs> the ad model, right? The the advertising model. And then as it continued down that road, it just became more and more evil because it had to deliver to shareholders, not, you know, to the public and, and provide a public good, right? And so we've seen a ton of like really terrible things that Google has done over the years as a result of that. And so, you know, I, I think the thing is Silicon Valley and tech companies really want us to believe that they can make a profit, they can make a lot of money, you know, in a lot of cases, they don't even make a profit. But you know, ones like Amazon and Google and whatnot, they can make um, a lot of money, but they can also do social good, right? That's a really key part of their branding, especially like post 2008, 2009, a lot of them were all about community, Airbnb, it was all about promoting community, Facebook, you know, this was a place to promote community. But actually, these are capitalist companies, and they have particular incentives um, and really, at the end of the day, it's about increasing their power and also, you know, extracting as much money as possible in whatever way that they can, you know, in the case of Uber, deregulating taxi industries, attacking the rights of workers um, in, in a broader way beyond taxis with, you know, the gig economy and everything that came out of that. And so, you know, in terms of in terms of how you fight it, like that is a more difficult question, I think. I think that we are seeing more organizing among tech workers, which I think is really positive um, because, you know, naturally they are the ones who are creating these services, developing these products. Um, and so if they are radicalized or at least pushing back on the worst aspects of it, I think that's a huge help. I think that increasingly we're having people kind of waking up to the issues with the tech industry. Um, and there's possibility of like, broader action because of organizing that has happened for a number of years, like when we look at um, potential antitrust action and, and competitive um, competition law uh, cases and things like that, that could be leveled against tech companies to try to certainly take down their size and the power that they have like in the marketplace, but also to try to rein in some of the things that they have been doing that are particularly harmful to people when you think about the data collection, the how the data is used, the way that algorithms are used to amplify certain content on social media. And so, yeah, there are, there are like a whole load of things when you think more broadly about technology. But, but again, as we were talking about earlier, like when we think about the, the politics of technology, I think even recognizing like there are things that we can do in the short term to hopefully try to blunt the worst aspects of this, I think in the end, there also has to be this realization that tech under capitalism is always going to have particular drivers, right? Particular motivations that it's serving. Um, and those are not the public good. Those are control and profit. Um, and until that 
larger structure is changed, um, there is always going to be this desire to have tech be used to achieve these goals. Um, and that's just the way it works, unfortunately. So I guess a uh, more powerful role for the states, maybe some more public utilities <laughs> in the digital spaces and things like that. <laughs> totally. You know, like th those are all pieces of it. You know, obviously, I uh, think that the state has a role to play. And I think that that is problematic in some ways, because obviously, I also don't have a huge trust in like the American government or the Canadian government. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have to juggle these two, these two thoughts at the same time. But really, if we are going to rein in the tech companies, if and, and if we are going to develop technologies and solutions that actually address these problems, you do need a role for the state or like some kind of public company, like in the way we have, you know, public media, like the CBC, again, not perfect. Um, but if we had public technology being developed, and you know, if we're talking about the transportation space, again, as we've been talking about in this conversation, what we need is not like more and better cars with better technology and, you know, electric cars and things like that. What we really need is once again, the state to step in and provision the public transit and the rail and the things that we need to actually ensure that mobility is provided as a right for everybody, but also to ensure that, you know, we're meeting those climate targets instead of just thinking about how electric cars will be an economic driver because it creates manufacturing jobs, it creates more mining jobs, it ensures that People are continuing to buy their own personal vehicle, which drives economic growth and, again, has a whole load of companies that are reliant on it. You know, like when you think about the larger implications, the systemic implications, like, yes, an electric vehicle makes more sense from that standpoint because it drives economic growth and economic activity in this way, in this very direct way. But if we're thinking about what's actually, you know, best for the public, best for our communities, best for the environment, it is these collective solutions that you do need the state to enact. Yeah. All right. I'm going to jaywalk more. That's my. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I think that's a really good place to end this episode with an idea of what we kind of need to look at for the future, especially for transportation, which is an industry that will rapidly change in the next decade as climate change becomes more and more of a, a, a topic for more and more people. So thank you so much for joining us today and for talking to us about your book and for lending us a, an early copy of it. I love it. I think everybody should read it. And I'm going to I'm excited to go pick up like a copy of my own when it hits shelves. <laughs> uh, did you want to plug anything else other than obviously everyone should be listening to Tech Won't Save Us? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think those are the main things. Like, thank you so much for having me on the show and the great conversation and, uh, you know, like informed questions about the book. Obviously, I really appreciate that after working on it for such a long time. Um but yeah, you know, if, if people could listen to the podcast and obviously if they are interested in checking out the book, um, they can pre-order it from Verso directly or, as I said, uh, you know, anywhere else that people get their books, it should be available. Amazing. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, you're at Paris Marx, just like the city and the socialist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people can find us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. You can leave us a voice message in the link below. I'm, I'm going to plug it every time, Kristen. I think it's delightful. Kyla's all about the voice messages. 
<laughs> Maybe I should add that feature on in my show. <laughs> I mean, nobody has sent us one yet, so there's no harm in it, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the first one we get is going to be like an alt-right, like, uh, <laughs> woman hater, but I... I... The palm oil trolls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, palm oil trolls. The only trolls we've ever had so far. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you on the next episode.